Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, a podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas, such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence, and other worldwide environmental issues. My coffee feature today is Doi Chang Coffee Co. Find out more at the end of the episode. In this episode, I speak with Mary Ellis and Richard Brown. We talk about lawn ecology, the No Mow May campaign, and choosing to hand scythe your lawn. Due to a few unfortunate and unforeseen issues, this episode is over two months late. So any practices discussing No Mow May and the, the month of May specifically, you'll have to wait to implement these until the spring of 2023. Everything else in the episode, though, is is relevant pretty much year-round and really important. Hi, Richard and Mary. Um, welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thank you for giving up your time to talk about lawns, um, which seems, on the surface, uh, pun intended, a very boring topic. Um, it's just grass, but it's completely the opposite, um, as obviously both of you will know. So we'll start off by getting to know you both a bit. Um, Mary, you've set the scene for me, but just for my listeners, um, Richard, would you like to introduce yourself and then Mary straight after? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so my training was a, as a botanist. I, I went to university to study botany, which is kind of like a personal passion. And then I thought I'd finish the degree and go out and get a proper job. Um, but as it transpired, people got interested in wildflowers. And I had a had an interest at, while I was at university. I thought, well, why do people have boring lawns? And I came up with this idea you could have lawns with flowers in it. And when I graduated, I found out that other people already had that idea and were starting to push it out there. So I basically joined them. And I joined Johnson Seeds to start with them, then Emma's Gate Seeds, more latterly. And I have had 30-odd years promoting wildflowers and lawns and grasses as a, as a natural approach to landscaping and gardening. Amazing. And um, yeah, Mary, you, you, I, think, I think you probably didn't do yourself justice um, when you, but uh, could you tell us a bit about you and where you fit into the, the whole, um, yeah, lawn thing? Um, I've had lawns most of my <laughs> life. Uh, actually, always on sandy soil until I moved to this place in the end of um, 2020 and it's clay, so it's very different, very fertile. Uh, where I really sort of intersect the, the the picture with Richard is that I had a very long garden when I lived in Surrey and I left the bottom third of it just to completely grow and grow and I didn't know about meadows and grasses I just let the grass grow and it got to about a meter and a half high and was I realized the seed was just going to go everywhere and I wanted to cut it with a scythe and what was fantastic though was that the the long grass the ants came in and there were these big ant hills and then that brought the green woodpeckers in and then one year I had a lot of ragwort and then the next year masses of the uh, cinnabar moth which feeds off it and that just completely got rid of the ragwort which was fascinating to see a whole population come and go. Anyway I couldn't cut it with and I wasn't going to use a strimmer because I love my frogs and newts so I set about trying to find a scythe and I had a horrible scythe that was shaped like a golf club called a scytheette. I could not sharpen it and so angrily I went to Google to find a sort of sharp tool 
tall shopping course and that's where I came across across the size association and Austrian size and then started to meet people like Richard who have been in meadows for a long time um, and I have a, a, a half cut and half half mown and half unmown lawn and it's fascinating on clay seeing the differences that makes yeah amazing uh, both very quite different um backgrounds but really kind of intersects through your love of grass and lawns um and obviously all the other things that that are within lawn you gave quite a, a good um example of my next question about the species within lawns and, and that kind of rely on on them um richard from a more kind of slightly scientifically ecological perspective why can lawns be such important ecosystems it, well it, lawns are very variable things so they vary from highly manicured recently sown or turfed fairly monoculture boring grass strips which are treated like carpet in a, an urban setting really through to lawns that have been there for a very long time and have, have got quite an ecosystem associated with them um, particularly depending on the soils they're on, if they're on chalky or sandy soils, likely more interesting than on a regular garden soil. Um, so of themselves, they're not, they're not the most diverse, but they can have quite a harbour, a range of flowers, like, meadow, like, like lawn daisies, for example, and quite often have good ant populations, as, as Mary's already said, that ants can live well, and, and earthworms, if they're, not, if they're not been poisoned already by people who don't like the unsightly worm casts that they throw up. So, but I think it's true that most domestic lawns are not the idyllic bowling green finish that people aim for. There's something a little bit more rough and ready than that. And as such, they possibly have more potential. And I think the fashion for mowing lawns is beginning to fade a little bit. That people realize that the bowling green finish is neither attainable nor desirable. And, and that's led to looking at lawns as possibly something more of a flexible ecosystem that can be allowed to flow flower during the summer and deliver its flowers for bees and that sort of thing mm, yeah no they're i mean they're fascinating things we've always let our lawn um grow kind of wild and and a bit more rampant than our neighbors um sadly we live in a block of flats uh, or a kind of house divided into flats back home so we don't really have that much control sometimes the uh the landlady will just let gardeners loose um, and we'll wake up one morning and it'll just all be flat, um, which is, is not what we want. But um, yeah, sometimes you just can't, can't control that. Um, in terms of if, if people do devastate their lawns, and I use devastate because that's how I kind of see it. It's if they just completely, you know, chop it all down to a really, really short um, length. Is there any specific... Uh, endangered or um, vulnerable UK wildlife species that are particular, particularly put in peril? I think it's a missed opportunity more than things being put in peril because mm. a lawn that's regularly mown has a restricted range of plants and species so it'll only take, contain grasses and flowers that can cope with constant regular defoliation or cutting back so it's plants like the lawn daisies I mentioned which just grow very flat to the ground and are short so they can stay under the height of the mower or creeping things like clover that, that most can get in anything taller you know such as knapweeds or plants you might find in meadow really haven't got a chance in that situation so it's more of a missed opportunity than it is devastation it's it's it, they could deliver more and they could deliver more than just a flat piece of not 
very aspiring grass. Mm. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that the um, the fashion for mowing lawns is kind of dying dying down a bit now. Um, more people are letting letting loose a little. Um, do you know? Could you kind of talk my listeners through if they don't know the kind of the public awareness campaign around not maying in May? So the no may no mow may bit of a mouthful campaign, um, and and sort of why that's important as a as a kind of method of science communication. And Mary, yeah, I'm, is, glad you, well, I'm glad you had to say no mow may first because it is a bit <laughs> of a tricky one to to get your head around. Um, yeah, so I think the first thing that people have tried to get people to understand is that all they have to do is step back a bit and let nature take its course and it will deliver thing, unseen things that you didn't imagine you had. Um, that can, in an extreme case, that can even be things like orchids and things which have been suppressed for maybe decades and get a chance to flower. So um, the charity Plant Life, which looks after all the interests of plants and natural plant communities, came up with the idea of, of trying to find a catchy way of getting people to give lawns a chance to be something else, hence the No Mow May campaign. So it, it most, the peak in growing season for plants and, gra and grasses in the wild, because of temperatures coming up in the spring and, and moisture being available is April through May. That's when the plants have got plenty of warmth because the sun is now warming up and plenty of moisture before the summer droughts. And that's when the peak of growth happens. And that's when the plants are most likely to time their growth spurt to grow up, flower and produce seeds. So that's hence the choosing of May. It happens in traditional meadows, which are fields that are let to grow tall deliberately so that it can be cut to harvest hay for animals. That's what they would do. They would take all the animals or are mowing away from the field, shut the gates and, and leave them to grow up tall so they can cut them in midsummer with the hay. So it's following that model too. Uh, and it's really giving people, you know, people a chance to step back and be brave and, and see what they've got and find out that they've got things that they didn't realise they had. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love the the folks at Plant Life. They do amazing work, but they could have chosen a little bit of an easier title to to say. I won't lie. Um, Mary, you've put your put your hand up. Have you got got something you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, this year I was um, unwell through all much of April, so I've had a no mo April and a no mo May all continuous, and was absolutely thrilled to the, the dandelions have really blossomed. And um, to, thrilled to see a pair of linnets come into the garden with their young fledgling and teaching it how to pick the seeds. So that uh, dandelions, as we know, flower and then they close for about two days before they open. And when they're closed, they must be at their lushest because uh, I've got a flock of goldfinches as well. But also the, the linnets, which I've, I've never seen, you know, I'm in my mid 60s and I've never seen a linnet before. So I thought that was a fantastic direct result of, of just leaving the lawn unmown. I've only been lucky enough to see them once. And I think they are kind of a more um, scrubland bird. So that, that makes sense, you know, letting your, your, wild, your garden go a bit wild and go a bit more scrubby. Um, will probably not really attract those kind of species which is amazing are they do you know if they're common in your area i don't know if they're common but i know on the rspb website that says that they're on the red list and there are very few of them yeah well that's an amazing sign that you know lawns like that can work and can um yeah show what's show what's there in terms of scything you both scythe um and that's a that's a big part of 
who you are and what you do. Why why is that um, so much better than any other method? I mean, even strimming is obviously it's better. You know, we all know it's better than mowing the lawn with a conventional lawnmower. Um, but why is it better than strimming with a an electric strimmer um, or a Shall I go first? Yeah, um, yeah sure. Again, for, it's very much as a sort of end user, the sort of common garden gardener rather than, than a, a, a botanist or an ecologist. I can mow the lawn at six or seven in, on a Sunday morning and not wake anybody. I can mow wet grass. Um, I can hear the rustling of a frog or a shrew or something like that that wants to escape because I'm approaching, which you certainly wouldn't get with a, with a mower or a strimmer. Um, it's not so great with slow worms because they just sort of freeze. But if you're alive to what you're doing, you can just stay awake and see what you're doing. Um, and the other thing is it, I worked in IT and a computer for many years and the, the movement of mowing was the best thing that ever happened to my lower back for sure. Um, and it's a fantastic bunch of people, I have to say. Yeah, and from uh, from a yeah ecological perspective, um, it's probably very similar, Richard. Just a protection of wildlife. Yes, I mean the, it is a tool for the job. I mean that, that's at a fundamental level. I mean the, one of the issues that came about because of last year's No Mow Man campaign is that they hadn't really thought about what happens after they the no mow may period is finished and the grass has grown tall and um, we've all as scythers and scythe teachers have experienced people rushing to us saying i didn't think ahead i thought well, my lawnmower would manage it and it, it killed the engine and it wouldn't cut it and they didn't want to resort to brush cutters and strimmers for all the reasons mary mentioned and, and turn to the scythe as the natural to the job which is the scythe was developed precisely for the job of cutting grass and it's still the perfect ergonomic tool to, to do the job with. Um, I think I, I would take up scything myself, um, but my garden is very, very small and there's not really a lawn in sight. We kind of have some flagstones and a path. Um, it's not, not our choice, but um, yeah, uni accommodation and all that. Um, looking at your personal opinions for a second, and just kind of putting aside all... Um, scientific education or anything like that just um mary you, you if you want to go first uh, and then richard your personal subjective opinions on artificial lawns we don't like them generally they're not nice to look at really but is there any justifiable reason for anyone to have one when you say artificial i guess you don't mean plastic grass you mean a, a green monoculture no no actual like plastic um, fake fake lawns I can't think of a single reason aesthetically practically ecologically why would you want to bleed more plastic tiddly widdly bits I forget what they're called in, into the environment and anyway the myth is that they look good and they're low maintenance they look absolutely dreadful because they get all the detritus on them that anything else does and then they have to be cleaned and have you ever fallen over on plastic grass Horrid. Yeah, not nice. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're of the same same opinion, Richard. Well, yes, I mean, plastic grass even suffers from moss. 
saying that it's an ideal habitat for moths to grow in. So it's not it's not free of the problems of natural grass. And there's a, the most horrific case study I've seen is just up the coast from me, and there's a set of beach houses, and they sit on this most wonderful little strip of dunes with sea holly and thrift and all things growing around. And one of the new owners of one of these beach houses, which look, it looks at, uh, set in the wilds, and there's, there's houses nearby made out of old boats and all sorts. They've installed plastic grass over the top of all this wonderful wildflowers that looks like a, somebody's planted it as a planting scheme. It was sort of the garden, I think, would win a gold at Chelsea if it was transplanted. And they stuck, they stuck palm trees and plastic grass in front of it. And, it. and it looks just an eyesore, really. I think planning ought to be onto them. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really ridiculous. Um, there's a, an amazing Instagram, possibly Twitter, but definitely Instagram account called Shit Lawns, which is just hundreds and hundreds of posts of artificial grass and why everyone hates that. Um, yeah. It's amazing. It's uh, yeah, and you can you can tag them and you can send send photos to people. You know, they're out in the wild and they see artificial lawns. They send them in photos, submissions, and everything. Um, and it's just, yeah, a few hundred people complaining about shit lawns, <laughs> which is great. I've got a link to that on the South Side Association website, isn't it? Oh, it's, a, it's an amazing <laughs> place. Um, I think in terms of, um, with manicured lawns, so uh, not artificial now, but just um, just plain shortcut manicured lawns, um, they are really just, uh, they don't look nice. They just don't look kind of, they look too clean almost. Um, I know there's one near me, really ironically, back home in Reading, um, the old site of the Elm Park Football Stadium, so where Reading Football Club used to play. Uh, the only bit of greenery is now a housing estate, um, and the only bit of greenery is uh, a small square of very neat-cut manicured lawn um, with a little white sign saying no ball games, which I think is... Uh, is the height of irony, considering that's uh, probably centre pitch for the old football stadium. Um, for a second, I want to talk about, uh, it's actually, I, I don't have a lot to, to talk about because you both have covered it very succinctly and the major issues, but the important thing for my listeners, I always try and bring it down to a non-academic level, which you both have done excellently, um, and a level that anyone can understand uh, with or without scientific training. Um, with regards to citizen science, is there a way that the everyday person, um, wherever we are, however, whoever we are and wherever, however busy we are in our day-to-day lives can get involved with lawn ecology and, uh, yeah, help, help out in any way? Um, well, I mean, the, the plant life are probably the focus for that sort of thing. I mean, there, there are, there are a number of citizen science type projects there's the recording that i think the woodland trust coordinate now where they record the first events in the spring like the first bumblebee the first cuckoo the first snowdrop that sort of thing and ironically they do they do add in the first time people cut their lawns and the last time they think people cut their lawns they don't do that because i think lawns are fantastically ecological it's just a good indication when people have to get the mowers out that's when spring growth has started and the last cut is when spring growth has ceased because the temperatures drop. So that there's that bit of citizen science, which is always worth having a look at. I think the Woodland Trust look after that. I think I'm right in saying that. Um, but I think plant life as a charity will will be one of the sources for that sort of feedback information. I'm sure. Yeah, excellent. 
And yeah, as I said, I mean, you've you've both managed to cover the major important issues uh, very succinctly. Um, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, uh, Mary, for example, you, you wouldn't say something, um, please feel free to because I, despite the amount of research that I always do before each podcast episode, I am a very novice lawn ecology person. Um, I know next to nothing about it, except that I, I love living in meadows and being near meadows and that's well i don't love it i have crippling hay fever um i still love it but uh yeah i, I don't know much much about it so if there's anything you want to say um uh, please go ahead um yeah i'd like to say something not so much about the sort of um citizen science data collection but just where where you can start if you've got a lawn um i hear you know you're not in control of your very small patch there George but um, one thing people get frustrated is that their lawn uh, dries out because grass doesn't grow you know above a certain temperature and below a certain temperature and I would say just put in Dutch white clover now it's nitrogen fixing so it's going to feed your lawn if you want a wildflower more wildflower you know meadow you've actually got to run the fertility down because the fertility feeds the grasses which outcompetes the meadow flowers. But if you're going to have a you know, suburban type lawn, I would say put clover into it. You get that it's low growing, it doesn't mind being cut, it doesn't mind being walked on, but it does feed not only the soil, but also bees and other insects. And then the other thing is, it's just an aesthetic. You know, when people first started putting up um, wind farms, wind turbines, people said how ugly they were. And that opinion has drifted by many tens of percentage points uh, in favor of them. And I think people are so used to what we call the manicured lawn, but it's just an aesthetic. It's just what you're used to. And if you want for practical reasons, because you've got kids to play football or you want to have your table out in the garden or whatever, have that, but around that, start to let, think about growing a meadow, letting it grow wilder, cutting it so that um, you know, you're managing it a bit and you can take the fertility off. So when you cut it, you take off the grass, you're reducing the fertility. Um, but you can start to have those benefits of the extra insects and so on from the edges, even if you still have quite a chunk of conventional lawn. Mm, yeah, so that's a really good point. Before we move on, uh, Richard, anything else you'd like to, to add? Do you think well, there's, two things have, sorry, there's two things that have come out following on from what Mary said. One of the big mistakes people make with conventional lawns, and there mm. are reasons to have conventional lawns, I have some is that they might far too close, but they shave it down. And the only reason really to shave it down to an inch or less is so that you can play bowls or golf or tennis on it, which is a bit ironic given the example you gave before where you then put a sign up saying no ball games. That's, it. That's the only reason because you want the ball to run true if you're playing croquet or golf or any of those things. Other than that, you're stressing the grass beyond its, almost beyond its limits. And unless you manicure it and feed it and water it very carefully, it will die because it hasn't got enough leaf growth. So the easy thing you can do, even if you're not going to let it go tall, is to relax the mowing to more than an inch, so two inches high, and the grass is more healthy and has got a depth, more worms, more ants, more everything. Even that it helps. So that's and another thing I noticed, that when, the, when all the lawns dry up, people keep cutting at this ridiculously low level, and suddenly their lawns turn brown because they've killed it. 
you know, it, one way of having a green lawn is to not cut it as often. Simple. The other thing I was going to say, which leads on from the no mow may concept, was that mm. there's one sort of, if it's a criticism or niggle I had with it, is they forgot to say what happens after May. The message, because of the way messaging works with the public, and it was a good, clear, simple message, but it was a two-part message. But I think people forgot the May bit. So they got the idea that mowing was bad per se. And obviously as scythe users, we realized that scythes are essential to maintaining plant structure and community structure and diversity. And that you've got to think about how you mow afterwards. And I think that was the one thing that was missing in the message is no mow May, but then what comes next, mow July. Um, it's, it's not anti-mowing, it's, it's just stopping mowing at a particular time of the year is, is the crucial bit. Mm. Yeah, no, very, very important. And I mean, you said in the first thing you had to say, you did say you had a few reasons or a couple of reasons why people could potentially have very neat lawns, not short lawns, but just neat lawns. Um, do you mind talking about them? Well, they, they have different vegetation structures from, so a lawn is, is mown almost continuously, as is a field that's grazed by sheep or cattle continuously. So that favours very short growing specialist plants and there is a case on some habitats for having very short lawns because the soil warms up better and that's better for certain species of ants so everything every structure has its benefit um, then you can have the opposite extreme a piece of grass that you don't cut at all which is good for over interest insects but has the tendency to get very coarse over time and lose its flowering interest so it provides somewhere to shelter in places over winter but not pollen nectar in the middle the meadow bit, which is the halfway house, is where it's cut and grazed for some of the year, but let to grow for some of the year, and therefore produces the most flowers. And the point is to have a mixture of all those things. So if one has a meadow, I always advocate people mow paths through it, partly so you can walk through it, but partly because it adds that other dynamic to the, to the structure, and somewhere for birds to, to wander without getting wet when it's a dewy morning, and that sort of thing. So everything has its place. And in the domestic sense, everybody needs a bit of lawn to sit out on and enjoy the sun. So I think a green lawn is a far more friendly surface to have even in an urban setting than paving, which is harsh and has no value and all the water runs straight off into the drains and causes flooding. Yeah, you've excellently outlined the need for nuance in, in kind of every issue. And um, we always need to look at all sides and uh, think critically and logically about everything. Um, especially with regards to lawns, I think. We can kind of move on to the last four questions, which are very quick. Um, they're very short, quick fire questions. But when I had two guests, uh, they're not quick fire because, you know, you've got to, you could have like, extended answers and you both got to answer. Uh, so take as much time as you need, basically. Um, there's no pressure. Uh, if we go, so Mary, because you are next to me on my screen um if you go first on the on the answer and then richard as as quick as possible straight after if you can um the first question is what's your favorite animal oh newts newts and frogs i have to have two um i'd go for common lizard as it's features on one of the reserves i manage can i can i interject uh so having not mown through april and most of may a week ago i cracked and i mowed some paths in and mm. the lizards that had appeared in my garden which none of the neighbors have seen like the path for sunning themselves on and then 
as they feel the feet, the vibration of my feet arriving on the scene, they dive into the long grass. So there's again another um, case for having short and long grass. Yeah, nice real world recent example. Um, is there a place you like to go and connect with nature? Kind of the one place you feel really at home outdoors? Um, well, as a child, it was Knoll Park. So lots of oak trees, lots of bracken. Um, I've moved recently and any of the woods around me in Kent, just absolutely fabulous, especially when the nightingales are singing. I'm, I'm going to have to say my own meadow, really, because it's, there's so much of me invested in that now. Um, and the second part of the answer is any interesting flowers and meadows that I've got a scythe with and I can explore in that much detail. The scythe gives me so much more connection and observation of what's in front of me than I ever had as just a botanist. Do you have a conservation hero? And by conservation, I just mean kind of um, because of the name of the podcast, obviously, but a hero is just anyone in your wide sphere of knowledge and, and skill that you look up to and admire. I'm going to have to say somebody who's, who's probably going to have a bigger name in the future, which is my niece, Katie Ellis. And I'm just absolutely blown away by her, her um, Hidden Ecologies podcasts and um, she's my hero i'm really happy to hear you say that because she's a really good friend of mine and um uh, yeah i'm blown away by her podcast it's incredible and the work she's doing um well there's been a lot of people over my lifetime that i would be influenced by but i, I think i pick, picked professor tony bradshaw who was my professor when i was in botany and um, the late tony bradshaw has sadly passed away he was a great inspiration not just because of the botanical insight that he showed but because of the breadth of knowledge and application he had. He was very much into practical applied ecology and that sort of really inspired me to, to look at practical applied using wildflowers to create meadows. I think Tony Bradshaw would be my hero. Um, last off, how do you take your coffee? I don't like coffee at all. I wish I did. I have about one cup a year just to try and see if I like it again, but I don't. Oh, no. sorry. Sorry. I take my coffee, camp coffee, in coffee and walnut cake, which I absolutely love. And I make a very good one. And one of Richard's kids is testament to that. Hey, I drink black coffee, no sugar. I'm not a great coffee drinker, so I don't go into fancy ground coffees and things like that. I'm quite happy with your basic instant or however it comes. I'm yeah. probably more of a tea, tea drinker than a coffee drinker. And of late, I've been brewing a lot of tea for people that come out from the flowers out of my meadow, inspired by teas given to me in Romania on the mountains. Nice, very nice. And um, yeah, I think with that, we can pretty much wrap up. All that's left to say is thank you very much, both of you, for, for being here and giving me your time. And I really hope my listeners um, learn something new. I'm sure they will. And if they're not partaking in No Mo May already, which obviously has sort of come to an end now, um, as we're recording on the 1st of June, annoyingly, um, due to various logistical issues and mostly my fault in being disorganised. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully for next year, anyway, and for the future, uh, those who don't do this will have learned something and will take it up in the future. And I'll put all the links to the organisations you mentioned in the description, especially I want people to learn more about scything and get involved uh, where they can as well. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Yes, no mo May and learn how to scythe in June. Excellent advice. Okay, that's cool. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to look George. up shit lawns now. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. That's, that's definitely one for the Sabi Facebook. Sabi is the Side Association of Britain and Ireland. That's definitely mm. one for the Facebook um, group. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, have a lovely evening, both of you, and thanks so much again. You're Real welcome. Thank you, George. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks again to Mary and Richard for taking the time to speak to me today. My featured coffee today is Doi Chang Coffee Company. Thai is a tonal language, so if I've pronounced this wrong and any Thai people are listening or any Thai speakers, um, I'd really appreciate a message just to let me know. I probably won't be able to amend the episode, but I would really appreciate the feedback nonetheless. This coffee is the result of an incredible partnership between the Akka Hill Tribe Farmers of Northern Thailand and the father-son duo John M and John A Dutch from Vancouver. The link to their website will be, as ever, in the description. I strongly encourage you to read about their story and their beyond fair trade approach to paying the coffee farmers a much higher than average premium. They also strive for community sustainability, full transparency and accountability in everything they do. A big thank you to those who support me on Ko-fi. Your donations mean I can do more walking podcast episodes in the future, like my recent one with Alana Scott, cover more exciting events in the future, like my opportunity to visit the Falmouth Blue Day and talk to marine-based charities in the local area, and support sustainable and ethical coffee growers like Doi Chang Coffee Company. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on a variety of streaming services, including Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steeman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.